Part Two, Chapter Forty Three, of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank, by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Chapter Forty Three, The Why and the Wherefore. One bright sunny morning, I stood on the avenue in Washington and watched the last review of the Army of the Potomac. What a pageant! What a sublime sight as the great host of veterans in solid columns marched along the thoroughfare. As a soldier, my eye delighted to dwell upon them. Their discipline and drilling were perfect. They were veterans in the truest sense of the term, and welded as in one mass the great army of the Potomac, which, though often thrown in the Titans' wrestling match, like Antaeus, arose from each fall doubly strengthened, until at last its antagonist lay prostrate. Now, as the victor, they traversed the street with pardonable pride, because the principles for which they had contended so stoutly and so gloriously were vindicated. Surely, thought I, the world never saw a finer military pageant, or a more effective fighting force even when Caesar marched his legions with low triumph on his banner along the Corso of Rome, or when Napoleon reviewed his grand army at Champ de Mars, when it returned after having carried their eagle through every city in Germany. What southerner standing Purdue in the crowd could help a feeling of pride in that his countrymen had withstood the mighty onset of this superb army for four years? As for myself, though I was conquered, I felt no shame in having been vanquished by such a vast multitude of warriors who followed their flag to the tap of the drum. Among scholars, critics, and military men, the cause of the defeat of the French at Waterloo, and the changing of the map of Europe thereby, is discussed with as much animation today as it was nearly a century ago. And in America, at least, the topic of the Civil War will be of supreme interest to the descendants of those who engaged in the struggle. And to those whose sympathies were with the South, there is every proof that the soldiers in the field did their part, the women at home did theirs, but that the government failed lamentably. The causes of the failure of the Confederate States to achieve their object for separate government were many. Access to the storehouses of the Confederacy were blocked when the Mississippi River was closed by the surrender of Vicksburg, and it was the duty of the Navy to see that no goods were shipped in through the windows. When the ports of Charleston and Williamton were tightly corked, the impoverished country around Richmond could only give in driblets a little meal, pork, and cow beans, that was all. I did not believe that any fair-minded man could study the history of the war between the states without coming to the conclusion that the Army of the Potomac could never have vanquished their adversary without the aid of the Navy. Had the ports been open and enough food imported to have fed Lee's army, Lee could have carried on the contest more aggressively and with better chances for success. Again and again, Lee was compelled to forego glowing opportunities that offered chances of success, because five days' rations for his soldiers could not be had. The want of forage ruined the cavalry in the last year of the war, and hunger broke the morale of the troops. To be beaten, the Army of Northern Virginia must needs be weakened by starvation. First, and principally, was the selection of Mr. Davis as president. The Confederacy was not a nation among the peoples of the earth, but merely the struggle of a minority rebelling against encroachment on their vested rights and seeking by force of arms to establish itself as a distinctive realm. 
Mr. Davis could not understand this glaring fact, or at least he seemed not to comprehend it, and he acted as if he were the chief of a great commonwealth, engaging in an equal struggle with a neighboring power. A figurehead for president during the Great War was all that was needed, and had the South chosen almost anyone else, her success would have been almost assured. The soldiers, as in Cromwell's time, could have ruled by the sword, and by the sword alone. Unfortunately, Mr. Davis had seen service in a few battles in Mexico, and shone there as a brave and dashing officer, and naturally he believed that he was a master in the art of war, a belief to which the most deplorable results were attributable. Every one of his favorite generals brought disaster and misfortune upon the Confederate arms. Bragg, Pemberton, Hooger, Northrop, Winder, Whiting, Benjamin, and a number of less prominent officials who were appointed and upheld by him, despite the earnest remonstrance of military men and in the teeth of public opinion. Could the two factions have exchanged presidents, and the South have had Mr. Lincoln as their chief magistrate, with his sagacity, his personal magnetism, his strong common sense, his patriotism, his readiness to yield his own opinion to others of greater experience, his willingness to remit his absolute power when his shrewd intuitions told him it was best, then there would have been two nations alike in lineage and language, but distinct in laws, inhabiting the continent of North America today. Mr. Davis's imprisonment was the worst blunder of statecraft the government of the United States ever committed. Its object, as Mr. Andrew Johnson expressed it, was to make treason odious, and they hunted down Mr. Davis, and thus, through his sufferings, as the exponent of a cause dearer perhaps at the time to the hearts of the Southern people than even their sacred religion, the ex-president became almost a canonized saint. Had Mr. Davis been treated by the victors exactly as the rest of the Confederate leaders were, he would voluntarily have chosen either banishment like Benjamin or utter isolation as did Pemberton. The second cause of disaster was the death of Stonewall Jackson, who was the genius of the rebellion. Had he lived, it is almost a certainty that, notwithstanding his modesty, he would have been the military dictator of the Confederacy. Had Jackson conceived the idea, and been imbued with the faith that God had predestined him to lead the people out of bondage, even as Moses did the Israelites, he would have accepted the mission. When he fell, the eagle of victory wended its way northward and perched upon the standard of the Union. The third was an appointment of General Jubal Early to an independent command. The right hand of Lee was broken when Jackson's former legion was overthrown, and their surrender became unavoidable. The military government of the Confederacy could not have been more imbecile. In the dark days of the Revolutionary War, there were noble patriots in Congress, such men as Governor Morris and Thomas Paine, who proved a tower of strength to their cause. In the Confederate Congress, there was not a man above mediocrity. The organization of the armies commenced wrong. A great blunder was made when the law was passed to allow cavalrymen to own their horses and to return home on furlough to obtain remounts. It marred the discipline of that branch of the service and kept many troopers away from their commands. It certainly lessened the effective force of Stuart's cavalry at least 33%. Then the management of the commissariat was abominable even in the first year of the war, when provisions were plentiful. But worst of all was the policy of non-promotion for valor and skill. 
it was reversing the practice of every great soldier in either ancient or modern times no matter how brave and skillful a private showed himself to be a private he was likely to remain this passive policy crushed all ambition and skill and every incentive to action the war office viewed with indifference the brave deeds of the soldiery and the men recognizing the fact that there was no chance to rise did not exert themselves we will wait until peace is declared and then we will get promoted they all said could the irony of absurdity go farther when we read that every trusted centurion of caesar's legions rose from the ranks that all of oliver cromwell's generals once carried a pike that napoleon's most brilliant marshals once bore a knapsack we can only wonder at the blind fatuity of the confederate leaders there were fully a score of the black horsemen who should have commanded regiments but not one among that famous organization though graduates of colleges men of wealth brains and brave soldiers and trained for years in the stern school of war ever rose beyond the rank of private except two or three with mosby's rangers in regard to slavery in the south lane but voiced public sentiment negro slavery had flourished in america because of its isolation the southern states as might have been expected were stronger in military genius than the states of the north this was true because agriculture was entirely in the hands of the slaves leaving the master class free to cultivate military traditions the southern confederacy presented a case very much like that of ancient rome it might have continued uninterruptedly for centuries had its isolation been complete but it could not live in the midst of an environment so essential to the institutions of the northern states in europe the entire material wealth of the confederacy was insignificant as compared with that of the free states the confederacy's material instruments either of defense or aggression in the conflict the confederacy fell in spite of the brilliant superiority of its military leaders this is true in part the negro while a burden and a curse to the south before the conflict yet he was a great source of strength when the war was on it was the negro who tilled the crops and fed the armies it was the negro that cared for the women and children and managed the farms and there was no time during the contest that they could not have ended the war within a week there was one advantage the south had over her adversary there was more unity among the powers that be with the exception of president davis's rouse there was little dissension among the southern leaders in the north on the contrary strife discord and jealousy pervaded every branch of the service a house divided against itself is bound to fall and the union edifice tottered sagged swayed and came near falling in ruins the only exception was lincoln who shone like a fixed pole star among the shooting meteors it was he and the middle classes that propped and rebuilt the house among the generals and politicians it was a regular donnybrook fair where you see a head above the others hit it it was a wonder that the army of the potomac did not go down before its adversary for their officers were rending each other like a pack of ravening wolves what a record mcdowell and mcclellan ridiculing scott mcdowell charging patterson with being an imbecile for letting johnson leave the valley banks kicking shields fremont cursing milroy pope vilifying mcclellan major general fitz john porter dismissed ignominiously burnside defaming franklin 
hooker intriguing for the command of the army declaring that burnside was insane mcclellan the organizer of the army practically under arrest at his home in trenton pleasanton the greatest cavalry leader of the north was literally kicked out of the army on account of his politics grant abused as a drunkard butler and admiral porter were at daggers points sheridan disgracing warren who saved the nation at gettysburg and howard and devins sent out west stanton the ablest war secretary since carnot with a temper of thersites insulted all who came in contact with him and was cordially detested by every man who wore the shoulder straps there were scores and scores of officers from the commanding general down to the officers of the line who after spending years in heroic endeavors were forced to retire to private life and see others wear the laurels their valor had won in the southern army there was no politics and but little bickering during the last winter of the war had mr davis and the confederate congress who were in a position to know the desperate and hopeless condition of the new republic knowing that slavery was doomed in any event armed the slaves with a proviso that every man who volunteered would be a free man forever there would have been no appomattox general lee favored the plan but the powers that be looked askain johnny reb did the best he knew how he fought anything and everything and never counted the odds he labored and slaved for years without pay and without reward there was no lust of conquest in his eye no hope of domination in his heart he fought on his own soil he fought for principle and because he did not believe the men who came on his native heath chasing him and shooting at him were his friends nor could he comprehend that he was being killed for his own good so johnny reb for four long years faced the tempest of war but during those dark but unutterably glorious days how he played his part will be the theme of the historian and the poet in the ages yet to come end of chapter forty three End of Part 2 End of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter